BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Atlantic staff writer Caitlin Dickerson has spent 18 months looking into the origins of the Trump administration's zero tolerance policy, which tore thousands of migrant children from their parents at America's southern border. We'll hear what Dickerson learned about the creators and endorsers of the policy, how it was enabled by dozens of people in government who failed to speak up even as they saw disaster looming. And we'll learn why even after the fallout, the policy of zero tolerance is only dormant, not dead. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Many of us heard the heart-wrenching audio in 2018 of migrant children crying out for their parents, or saw video of sobbing parents being reunited with their toddlers who'd been taken from them at the U.S.'s southern border during the Trump administration. We heard about the astonishing lack of records of who the children were and who their parents were before transporting them thousands of miles away from each other. After an 18-month-long investigation, Atlantic staff writer Caitlin Dickerson has pieced together how the catastrophic policy known as Zero Tolerance, came to be. And Caitlin is with us now. Welcome to Forum. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. How did Zero Tolerance come to be? Who first proposed this? So it's a long story. In fact, uh, the roots of Zero Tolerance stretch all the way back to 9-11, when the way the U.S. government looked at illegal border crossing changed really dramatically. Um, and there was a real crackdown across the board um, for this transgression. Out of that comes an idea to use prosecution as a way to discourage people from crossing the border. Initially, in the early 2000s, it's used against individual adults, mostly migrant laborers from Mexico. And then it escalates and becomes more and more 
politically popular, despite a lot of evidence that it actually doesn't work very well um, until it's ultimately proposed as an idea to discourage families crossing the border into the United States. Um, and, and of course, in many cases, those families were seeking asylum, but they nevertheless were um, faced criminal prosecution under zero tolerance. A man named Tom Homan came up with the idea originally. He'd spent decades in border enforcement and rose to become the head of ICE under President Trump. And he first actually proposed it during the Obama administration, but the idea was rejected. And then after Trump took office, obviously with a goal to really crack down on border crossing of all kinds, the idea comes up again and gains much more support, ultimately being approved. I see. So prosecutions became a way of cracking down on the border against adults. It wasn't families that would be subject to prosecutions as if they crossed as families. But Tom Homan felt like if you prosecuted families, which would then separate the children from the parents, that that would deter people from attempting to cross, right? It, it was a it was a product of this philosophy of prevention by deterrence? Exactly. Prevention by deterrence is also sometimes called uh, the consequence delivery system created by DHS, again, in that post 9-11 era. Um, and the idea, you know, at base is that you make the experience of crossing the border so unpleasant that word makes it back to people's home country, you know, don't come to the United States because you're going to have this bad experience when you get there. Um, you know, again, academics have been studying this for decades and, and pointed out over and over that prosecutions don't make a huge impact on illegal border crossings, and they also come with huge consequences. You know, Far more impart, important are the economic circumstances, both in the United States and in the countries that people are fleeing, as well as a baseline level of public safety. You know, do people feel like they can raise their children without worrying every day that they might you know, be victims to violence, that they might not, you know, could potentially even be killed? These are the primary factors that influence trends across the border. And that's why, by the way, you saw record-breaking numbers of people cross the border under the Trump administration, which, as everyone knows, imposed very harsh deterrence strategies. 2019, the year after zero tolerance ended, was a record-breaking year for border crossing. So I think that helps to show this isn't an issue that's you know, Republican or Democrat, an issue that any particular policy that the White House might introduce is going to change things really dramatically, you know, in the subsequent weeks or months. These are years long trends um, and issues that have to be looked at much more systemically. So even before family separation was proposed, was this research already out there showing that prevention by deterrence wasn't working or at least people were were coming to realize that? Absolutely. Um, researchers have been writing for decades, you know, nonpartisan experts on the issue about the problems with prevention by deterrence, you know, the fact that it doesn't seem to influence overall trends in any significant way, and also that it's had the result of completely overwhelming uh, our U.S. attorneys who are stationed along the southern border. You know, a lot of those border courts have maybe a single magistrate judge to handle every case that comes through. And so when you talk about all of a sudden putting before them hundreds of additional misdemeanor cases every month, that means there's less time to focus on more serious crimes, you know, drug trafficking, human trafficking, issues that you consistently see at the southern border. Um, so the, the pitfalls of prevention by deterrence are widely known. But the problem is that you know, Congress really, more than any other part of our government, 
has control over this system. And, you know, the laws that we have in place really don't speak to current geopolitical circumstances. They're decades old. You know, they really predate, for example, the massive increase in migration from Central America that we've seen in the last decade. And so when Congress doesn't get involved and sort of use these the evidence that, that exists, this issue has been left to the Border Patrol, which you know is an agency that's you know very overwhelmed by the amount of border crossing that exists, and that doesn't have a whole lot of tools at its disposal besides punishment. You know, it's it's basically a police force along the southern border who's who's left to deal with this every day in the absence of congressional action, and so they continue to reach for the tool they have available, even though it's been shown over time to just not work. Yeah, which is greater punishment, but. Uh... All of that still has to be signed off on by very high-level people. So when Tom Homan proposed this under Obama, it didn't go anywhere. But when it was proposed under the Trump administration, even with the research, that increasing punishment or reaching this level of horrific deterrence would not work, it, it, gets, it gets legs. Why? Why was it different under Trump? As your listeners know, President Trump campaigned on on a promise to crack down on the border that he seemed to hold on, you know, more tightly as time went on, and, and he saw that it got very strong positive reactions from his base during rallies. So his views on immigration don't seem to be deeply held, you know, and ideologically driven. They're more based on the fact that you know, anti-immigration rhetoric seemed to be very popular and successful for him, and so. As that became clear, you know, the administration, at, at, from its earliest weeks, you know, there was a real um, effort to look for any possible way of trying to limit border crossings, of trying to show, you know, Trump's most most supportive voters that he was delivering on these campaign promises. And you have his his chief advisor on immigration, Stephen Miller, um, who's very different in background. You know, somebody who does have very strong ideological views on the issue, um, a relatively young man and, and low level figure in government, but who already had a years long track record of trying to come up with creative ways to just stop anybody from getting into the United States. Um, and so that's why, you know, when this idea, Tom Homan's idea to separate families resurfaces, you know, it, it happens in a much more receptive environment, you know, an environment where people at the White House and in the political ranks at, at the Homeland Security Department are desperately searching for ideas to crack down on border crossing. And so they they become very excited about this one very early on. But I thought the Department of Homeland Security was initially led by John Kelly, who was opposed, he has said, to separating families. How did that, Miller get around that? Yeah. So Miller is very um, creative and adamant and I think aggressive in, in pushing for ideas that he believes really strongly in. And John Kelly, General Kelly, who, who yes, was the initial Homeland Security Secretary under President Trump. Prior to that, our top law enforcement official, or rather a military official, excuse me, right. in, in the Northern Triangle, um, you know, overseeing these countries where migration was coming from most often, he was very knowledgeable about the issue. And, and he's one of many who took you know, different types of strategic approaches, they, they told me in my reporting, to try to stop family separations from happening that took into account who they were talking to. In other words, Kelly says to me, you know, from the moment he's asked to consider separating families, he disagrees with it on moral grounds, but he says, 
he knew it wasn't going to, he wouldn't have been able to convince the White House um, to not pursue this policy on those grounds alone, that they wouldn't be receptive to the argument and that it could perhaps even alienate him and disempower him, you know, in his efforts to try to prevent such things from taking place. And so he focuses really on the logistics um, and the fact that the U.S. government did not have the shelters, the detention centers, you know, the staffing, the training, none of the resources that would be needed to implement this policy with any degree of efficiency um, or organization. And of course, we saw him proving proven right when family separations began in earnest, but he focused on that argument to try to stop the separations from happening. And, and Miller just went around him. I mean, he would call until the early hours of the morning into various officials at DHS, kind of at every level, um, trying to get on board as many people as he could. Um, he also invited lots of people to White House meetings that were far above their station. It was a way of kind of currying favor with the lower ranks and creating this critical mass of support that also began to eventually exert pressure onto the secretaries, you know, initially John Kelly, then you had Elaine Duke who took over in the interim status before Kirsten Nielsen ultimately takes over. All three of those secretaries faced great pressure to move ahead with this. Even if Trump administration officials or those high up in the administration would not have been receptive to the moral argument, wouldn't there have been other sort of middle or upper level bureaucrats who would have just on the face of it known that it was a morally bankrupt thing to do? There were, in fact, members of the bureaucracy, both in the Department of Homeland Security, as well as in the Health and Human Services Department, which takes custody of migrant children who are in federal care. Um, there were people in those agencies who had heard rumors, just like you and I, that the, that the administration was considering separated families and, that, and then started to see evidence that it had begun in 2017 um, before the administration was acknowledging it publicly. And these individuals wrote reports uh, referencing all the expectations you know, that, that they had for what would go wrong if family separations were being pursued on a large scale, You know, warning of things like permanent populations of US, U.S. orphans is a quote from one of the documents that I uncovered in reporting this story. Um, you know, there's a, a report that was written at the end of the very first local separation initiative that began in El Paso, Texas, that concludes with one recommendation, which is to come up with a system for tracking children and families. And, and those recommendations and concerns went ignored. We're talking with Caitlin Dickerson, staff writer for The Atlantic, about our 18-month investigation into the secret history of family separation. It's Atlantic September cover story. We'll have more with Caitlin and invite you, our listeners, to weigh in after the break. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. I have put in place a zero-tolerance policy for illegal entry uh, on our southwest border. If you cross the border unlawfully, then we will prosecute you. It's that simple. If you smuggle illegal aliens across our border, then we will prosecute you. If you are smuggling a child, then we will prosecute you. And that child may be separated from you as required by law. That was then Attorney General Jeff Sessions announcing officially the Trump administration's zero-tolerance policy at a press conference in May of 2018. We're talking about the history, origins, and impact of that policy with Caitlin Dickerson, a staff writer for The Atlantic, who spent 18 months looking into what happened. What are your thoughts or questions for Caitlin about what she uncovered or how she uncovered it? If you are connected in any way to the policy or what happened, feel free to also share that with us. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or you can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Caitlin, just before the break, you were talking about how, essentially, I think you write in your piece, quote, the brutality of zero tolerance was immediately evident. And <clears throat> there are so many heart-wrenching moments that you describe in your piece, and I'm just going to read a little bit because it's easier for me to read it than to talk to you about it. Um, but there is a there is a moment where you describe the father of a three year old, who <clears throat> you write this way: they had to use physical force to take the child out of his hands. The man was so upset that he was taken to a local jail. He yelled and kicked at the windows on the ride. The next morning, the father was found dead in his cell. He'd strangled himself with his own clothing. You also talk about how you were reporting the story in real time, and you met a man named Nazario Jacinto Carrillo and and learned about his daughter Philomela. Can you, Philomena, can you tell us what happened to Nazario and Philomena? Yes. So, right. The brutality of, of zero tolerance was immediately evident, you know, and, and I think that the the father who committed suicide is, is an example of that. And there were many others. So Nasario was, was one of the first separated parents I spoke to on the phone who was still at, at that phase of, you know, just having been deported to his home country under the pretenses. He was told when he agreed to his own deportation that his daughter would be sent back in two weeks. And that didn't happen. And so he's one of the first parents I interviewed who really was just begging me for information about where his daughter was. And he told me the story of, of their decision to cross the border. You know, So he comes from a family of corn farmers in the Western Highlands of Guatemala. They're incredibly poor. Um, during times of year when, when they make the most money, they're bringing in about $4 a week. Um, but often they were bringing in nothing. They were very hungry. Um, he had two children at the time. Now he has three. 
And, and not only that, but, you know, they felt unsafe. This is uh, really the, where they live is, is on the direct route of migration from Guatemala to the United States, um, a lot of which is facilitated by cartels and, and they had been exposed to a lot of violence. And so based on that, he decides to cross the border with his older daughter, Filomena, she was five at the time, with the hope that his, his wife and their son, who was a baby, would eventually be able to join them in the United States and, and he planned to request asylum based on the circumstances they were fleeing. You know, when they encountered border patrol agents at the border, they knew nothing of this zero tolerance policy. You know, they don't have a television in their home. Um, they don't get the newspaper. Uh, if he was lucky, he got news by radio, um, terrestrial radio, because you know because of the poverty they they live in. So you know, border patrol agents, he says, moved immediately to literally um, you know pull Filomena away from him, despite that she was fighting back. Another young girl traveling with them, who's also the same age with her parent, you know, was also fighting back, uh, lots of screaming and crying all around. And, you know, they were given no information about why this was happening. And Nasario was understandably very scared and surprised this wasn't what his expectation. So as I said, he soon after agrees to his own deportation, believing that Filomena will be returned in two weeks. And later parents who made this decision were really vilified by the Trump administration who sort of blamed them for leaving their own children behind, not acknowledging these false promises that were made in many cases. And you know, one of the things that, that stuck with me when I kind of explained that to him on our phone call was that he just said, I would never abandon my daughter. And much as I tried to interview Nasario, you know, I'm trying to tell the stories of separated families and, and in doing so point out, you know, the falsehoods that were very clearly um, being articulated by the administration at that point in time. But he wasn't able to answer any of my questions. I mean, all he could think about was where his daughter was and when he was going to get her back. And so, you know, in the face of my questions, he would sort of turn around and ask me his own. And, and much as I tried to explain, I, I wish I had these answers, but I don't. He, he continued to say, you know, when will she be home? And how much longer do you think this will take? And well, can you give me a rough estimate of the number of days it might take? And you know, what does the American government want with these children anyway? Why is it kidnapped them or words? that he used. Um, so he, he's one of many parents who was just deeply, deeply confused and, and depressed. And their family very much still lives with this experience today, so much so that when I called Nasario to tell him I was writing this most recent story, you know, Filomena basically was instantly in tears just hearing her father recount this experience to me. Yeah, you followed up and, and <clears throat> the lasting effects of this were very clear in what you shared Joan writes, this policy reminds me of the practice of separating Native American children from the safety and security of their families. The cruelty of this practice being not that the intent was to make the children white, but rather cruelty for cruelty's sake. <clears throat> Has another administration, another presidency, <laughs> done this to children or done this to families who are trying to immigrate to the United States or trying to cross the border or crossing the border illegally even? It hasn't. And, and I think that's worth noting on and, and dwelling as your caller has, because, you know, we have a, a long history of very harsh um, and, and, you know, often cruel immigration policies in the United States, you know, dating back to Chinese exclusion, of course, you know, race-based quotas that existed, um, you know, the, the disproportionate 
cruelty um, that, you know, immigrants coming over the border from Mexico experienced in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. In any of these cases, though, you know, you, you never saw children being taken from their parents as a deterrent. And in fact, when you look at some of the Supreme Court's earliest decisions on immigration policy, they often talked about family unity and talked about, you know, weighing the cost-benefit analysis of even a deportation, um, you know, if a deportation was going to result in a family being separated. It's it's something that, you know, throughout history has has at least been held up as an American value, if, if not always actually um you know, supported, not always actually when you, when you look at the evidence and the facts, you know, for example, the, the experience of Native American children that your callers pointed out, you know, it's not a value that we've always upheld, but it's it's one that we've at least um, sort of celebrated and, and claimed throughout American history. And that is part of what makes this separation of families for purposes of immigration deterrence so novel. Um, one of the people in my story, Jonathan White, who's a a commander at Health and Human Services Department who worked hard to stop family separation. And then um, after he was unsuccessful, worked on reunifying families. He put this very well to me in a quote that actually didn't make it into the story. But he, he basically said, you know, the historical jury is in on this issue of taking kids away from their parents. You know, it, it happened to Native American families. It happened to enslaved families. And this is not something that, you know, we stand for as a nation. Again, setting aside partisanship, setting aside, you know, which political party has power at that given time. You know, we're not a country that takes kids away from their parents. You know, he felt like that decision had sort of been um, made and was bewildered as as were many um, as to how it's possible that this, you know, seemingly conclusive history was being revisited. We're talking with Caitlin Dickerson and you, our listeners, about the impact of the Trump administration's forced separation policy when border agents separated more than 5,000 migrant children from their families at the U.S.-Mexico border, you can join the conversation by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And, of course, let's go to your calls. Ahmed in Fresno. Hi, Ahmed. Um, good morning. Um, this is a question for the author. Uh, prior to the Trump administration, there was a Democratic administration in place under Barack Obama. That was for eight years, and he was infamously known in the Hispanic circle as deporter-in-chief. Now, uh, the great talks about bipartisanship and everything sound great, but when the report does not allude to the number of deaths and child separations that happened under the eight years of Obama's administration, but focuses on only the 15-month period on the Trump administration, it seems like another liberal hit job on the president. And that's something that turns away a lot of middle-order away from NPR and the Atlantic, because you talk about bipartisanship, but you fail to mention or bring out a report, report about the deportations under Obama and the number of child deaths and child separations that occurred. Uh, um, the second point for... is that the author mentions about uh, having a wage of less than $4 for the immigrant. Uh, Ma'am, in all due respect, if people making under $4 were to move to the state, 95% of the world's population will be living within the 50 states. And as a journalist, I also consider your responsibility to give an alternate suggestion rather than just saying that all deportations should be banned. Thanks. Uh, Ahmed, thanks for your call. Let me get Caitlin to respond to a couple of things. One that's coming out is, do you feel that the deportations and family separations, do you hear that a lot as being comparable to what the Trump administration did, Caitlin? 
thank you for your call. And I have heard, you know, frustration over partisan coverage of, of immigration. And I'd encourage you um, to, to read the story because I, I don't think that you'll see that, you know, uh, any political party is sort of left off the hook for the way that they've handled immigration. You know, the story spans, again, the George W. Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and even the Biden administration. It's all in there. Um, I do want to do a bit of fact checking in that, you know, at the time, you know, during zero tolerance and, and even subsequently, you continue to hear um, this argument that families were separated during the Obama administration. And, you know, well, it has always been the case that border enforcement authorities have separated children who cross the border with adults if they felt that the child was unsafe, um, if they suspected that the adult wasn't actually the child's legitimate parent or if it was a legitimate parent, but that person had such a severe um, criminal record so as to suggest a child might be in harm's way simply by remaining in their care, those families were separated and it happened occasionally, but there was nothing on the scale of what happened um, in terms of separations under the Trump administration. The data really doesn't compare. And so I think that is important for people to know you know, the story takes a hard look at deterrence in general. It doesn't say um, anything about sort of all deportation being bad or, or anything like that. Again, I think it's, you know, this is such a partisan and emotional issue and, it, and it's easy to get carried away, but I would encourage, you know, reading the story really closely because we tried to um, approach it from, you know, the perspective of, of everyday Americans and, and not to sort of um, forget about the history of one side in service of focusing on another. Um, you know, there, there's a quote from our current DHS secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, in the story where he says, you know, there are deterrent strategies about which there can be reasonable debate. So he's talking about, you know, things like deportation, things like prosecution, perhaps targeting individual adults. But what he said he felt was that separating families for the purposes of deterrence was just beyond anything that, you know, a, a, a dignified um society and humane society should countenance, again, kind of setting aside political persuasion. So that's the argument that I think helped to lead for us to focus so much on family separations, but but tried to do so, you know, in a way that didn't exclude other types of policy and other types of enforcement practice. I think it's all in the piece. Yes, it is all in the piece. One of the other things that's in the piece, Caitlin, <clears throat> is your interview with Kirsten Nielsen, who takes over the Department of Homeland Security after John Kelly leaves to be chief of staff for President Trump, and is the person who ultimately signed off on the policy to be implemented. <clears throat> One of the things she does cite is what you just mentioned, which is that um, in the in defense of the policy, she talks about needing to take children away from people who were posing as their parents, people who were violent with criminal records, or if the child was somehow in danger. So we're talking about more than 5,000 children. Was this a, a, a large, even a small proportion of this group? Um, if, if it was, it was a very small proportion. So I, I write in the story that numerous Trump administration officials said to me, you know, they, they really didn't want to talk to me for the story unless I was going to acknowledge the existence of false families and human trafficking, which, as I mentioned at the outset of this conversation, has always been an issue to some degree along the southern border. Of course, globally, human trafficking is a problem. Um, 
But I looked into instances of false families, you know, in terms of those who were separated to figure out whether they made up any substantial number. And, and I frankly could not find any evidence that they did. You know, I asked each of these officials who invoked the existence of false families, you know, give me a report, give me evidence, give me any kind of document, even give me an official source that, that's not sort of hearsay and rumor. And, and they simply couldn't produce these records. I, I also asked the Biden administration, which formed a family reunification task force um, to continue the work of reunifying separated families, the hundreds of them who remain separated today. Um, I asked them if they'd found any evidence of false families, and they haven't identified a single one in all of the records that they've reviewed. So again, I, you know, I don't want to suggest that there's never, you know, a situation where an adult poses as, as the parent of a child, and it's not true. I think that does happen, and it can happen, but it was not by any stretch of the imagination a significant proportion of the families that ended up separated. And so the idea that, you, you know, you had to separate thousands of families in order to protect, you know, um, a group of children that is either very small or non-existent from being trafficked, I think doesn't hold up when you look at the evidence of this issue. You write that it's been said of other Trump era projects that the administration's incompetence mitigated its malevolence. Here, the opposite happened. What are you referring to? So again, setting aside the sort of morality of the decision to separate families, when you look at the implementation of zero tolerance on its face, it is a, a government failure of really catastrophic proportions. You know, I look deeply into planning that took place ahead of time to make sure that separated families could be reunited and found that almost none took place. Again, even though these records, these um, internal reports that were generated by members of the bureaucracy, which we've talked about, warned that, that families would end up permanently separated, that infants would end up separated from their children. And that is the case. I mean, today, there are more than 150 50 children who were separated, uh, whose parents still have not even been located by the federal government. And our records suggest that between 700 and 1,000 of those families haven't been officially reunited today. So, you know, there was very little um, notification across the federal government to the various offices and agencies that were going to be impacted to zero tolerance. You know, people just weren't told in advance that this was coming. They weren't able to prepare. And so there was no system in place to allow this to happen in any kind of an orderly way or to allow families to be reunited um, after, you know, these prosecutions were complete. And that's not even to speak of something we may get to later, which is the efforts that were taken by some government officials to actually block families from being reunited after prosecutions were complete, which again, just really undercuts the argument that separation wasn't the goal, it was only you know, prosecution. Yes, you're right, separating children was not just a side effect, but the intent. Again, we're talking with Caitlin Dickerson. If you want to read her full 18-month investigation, it's called The Secret History of Family Separation. It's also the Atlantic September cover story. We'll have more with her and you after the break on Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The Atlantic's Caitlin Dickerson spent 18 months piecing together the story of the Trump administration's policy of separating migrant families at the border. Dickerson writes in the piece, I'm in her piece for The Atlantic, I'm one of the many reporters who covered this story in real time. Despite the flurry of work that we produced to fill the void of information, we knew that the full truth about how our government had reached this point still eluded us. She is sharing that. But I do want to ask you, Caitlin, you grew up in Merced, California, right? Yep, I did. Did did growing up there influence your interest in covering immigration? You know, if if it did, it was only on a subconscious level. I think I didn't, I, I mean, I know I didn't realize growing up in Merced that, you know, communities across the country weren't as, as richly diverse and, and full of immigrants as the one that I grew up in. I think it was really when I got to college at Cal State Long Beach, where I studied international studies and did courses on immigration history, where I felt like there was such rich fodder that could help um help you know the American people um, engage more fully with their democracy, kind of understand um, what's happening in their name a lot of times without without fully comprehending it because because what we hear from politicians, you know again on both sides, it tends to be so oversimplified and so stripped down and, and lacking in sort of explanation of, of consequences. I just was really enamored with the subject and wanted to understand it better myself, but also help you know, help our country understand it better as well. And so that's probably what led me to gravitate toward immigration coverage when I became a reporter, which was first at NPR, um, and have just sort of stuck with it ever since. Yeah, you talk about how you realized in the people that you interviewed, among the people that you interviewed, that there was very little knowledge or understanding of immigration policy by the people who were involved with it um, uh, on certain levels or in charge of making decisions around it, including Kirsten Nielsen as well. I mean, that's kind of shocking in a way, but I guess when you also describe the, the bureaucracy, maybe in some ways not, but did it still strike you as you reported this? Absolutely. I found it very shocking that there were people in our governments who were sitting in meetings talking about family separations without realizing it because they had so little knowledge about how immigration enforcement works, you know, how the the care of children in immigration custody works versus the care of adults that they didn't realize. Um, As I think anybody with a baseline level of knowledge would, that when you talk about prosecuting adults traveling with children, that means necessarily transporting those children to an entirely separate federal agency, one that uses a kind of algorithmic process for placing children, you know, who tend to be unaccompanied into shelters that it oversees, which are scattered across the country. In this case, though, you're talking about kids who traveled with their parents, which means you're going to have parents being prosecuted in Arizona and children in, in shelters in New York. Inevitably, you know, um, 
I think I understood that there was somewhat of a lack of knowledge of, of immigration in Washington, but, but I did not realize how deep it went. And, and I tried to figure out why that was. You know, I was basically told that immigration is a career killer. You know, it's controversial, as your listeners know. It's hard to rally support behind, um, or it can be, you know, on, on both sides to some degree of the aisle. And so, and, and, you know, some people were very frank with me and just said, you know, there's not a whole lot of money to be made in the immigration space. And when you get a job in a White House, you have to think about where you're going to work four years later, you know, and people who wanted to focus on defense or even focused on, you know, the economy, um, other issues you know, they felt like would be more lucrative for them in the future. And so they were very frank about that. But, but the result of it is is really, you know, can't be overstated because you've got this dearth of knowledge about an issue that for so many people is really life and death. You know, in this in this case, it's, it's you know, we're talking about a policy that it's going to have and that is having, you know, lifelong consequences for the families who are impacted. And, and yet the decision makers um, who, who decided their fate didn't always know what they were talking about. I mean, that is, again, a, a problem, and I think a nonpartisan one. Let me go to caller Michael in Vallejo. Hi, Michael. Yes, hello. Uh, hi, how are you? A great show. Uh, congratulations on your article. Uh, I'm a retired journalist and also a parent. I hope uh, you win a Pulitzer Prize after looking at some of these things. Here's some questions, and I'll, I'll take your answer off the air. Uh, my wife and I are talking, uh, what's the current status of uh, both the parents and the children uh, that were separated? What's the legal status? I know you mentioned they can't find them. Um, that would be one question. Then a question as a, as a writer myself and a reporter myself for many years, what would be your personal uh, uh, policy revision if you had a thought of that? In other words, if, if, you, if you, you know, do you have a remedy that you've considered. And then another question that come up is, uh, is there a justice system, court cases, or, you know, like uh, a way in which the, uh, the, the uh, folks who put this in place could be held to some sort of justice, uh, you know, going to mm. a Supreme Court thing or something like that. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, Michael, you thank you. I can tell you're a journalist. Um, those are a lot of really great questions and also ones that I would love the answer to. You did touch on the status. You mentioned 700 to 1,000 families. But if you have a little more about that, Caitlin. Sure. Yes. Thank you for your call. It's it's great to connect with another journalist. So uh, separated families are eligible to apply for a three-year temporary parole status in the United States. Um, it, this is a challenge for families that were separated, especially ones where the parents were deported. You know, they've got to get on the internet, they've got to apply through an online portal. I think the Biden administration has made efforts to make this process as easy as possible, but it's a process um, and, and one that is a challenge for disadvantaged families. Those who complete it, again, they'll get three years of legal status in the United States and then have to apply for some more permanent um, form of legal status. Um, and so it's something that you hear advocates representing these families talk about quite a bit um, in that you know, some feel and have said that you know, perhaps a permanent legal status should be granted to these families. Again, a controversial issue, um, but, but one that's being called for, I think, by individuals who, who are really focused on you know, just how much these families have been harmed um, by American government action, and, and also kind of their relatively small numbers in comparison to the, the, you know, the number of people who come into the United States every year. 
as of right now, it's a three-year temporary status. Um, as for solutions, you know, it's a funny question, Michael. You know, I don't think of it as my role to come up with solutions. I think of my role as a journalist as one that you know is supposed to inform everybody so that they can come up with their own positions um, based on good information. You know, that's always my goal. Is I want to put the facts in front of people and and not have people make determinations when they don't fully understand what happened, as was the case here. And so, you know, certain reform efforts that I can tell you are most popular and I think also have some bipartisan support are, you know, the idea to just simply outlaw separating families in the future. It doesn't really take away from, you know, the possibility of pursuing deterrent strategies, despite the pitfalls that we've talked about, but but really just a, a sort of affirmative, you know, determination that separating families is is just beyond the pale of what we're willing to countenance, you know, to use Secretary Mayorkas's words as a country. You know, others have, have simply asked for an apology. I think there are a lot of separated families who I've heard say an apology would be really meaningful. You know, others have talked about things like reparations. Um, you know, I think more than, I don't want to say more than actually, but um, sort of zooming out from those more narrowly targeted remedies. There's also, though, this question of um, broader immigration reform, immigration reform that takes into account research that has been available for years, um, which points out, you know, the flaws in our current system. They're they're easy to see. Um, there there are many of them. And, you know, it's really Congress who can do something about it. Um, in terms of accountability in court cases, some separated families have filed civil cases against the United States seeking damages, um, and even against the individual officials who are responsible for family separation. You know, I asked uh, Secretary Mayorkas about accountability for those responsible for family separation, and, and he said that fell to the Department of Justice. But it, it's worth noting that the Department of Justice under President Biden has actually been defending this practice in, in these court cases. And, and not only that, but using the same talking points in some cases that we heard before that sort of suggest that you know family separation policy never existed, even though at this point, there really is, as I put in the story, you know, a mountain of evidence, documentary evidence and interviews showing that that is just not true, that separations were the goal for the architects of this policy and those who pushed most aggressively for it to be put into place. Well, do you think that it could be put in place again? You talked with some of the key players. It doesn't sound like a lot of them feel that this is a line they would not be willing to cross again. I absolutely believe that separating families will be on the table in a future Trump administration or, or an administration that, that looks anything like a Trump administration. I think there's so much evidence for that. You know, part of it that President Trump began pushing really as soon as zero tolerance ended to re-implement family separations. He felt like he had caved um, and he wanted to go back to the prior system, even at that point when all of these flaws, you know, the fact that children and parents were getting lost, all of that was well known. He, he still believed in it. But, you know, it's not just people with partisan views um, or, or, you know, primarily partisan motivations who support the idea of bringing back family separations. There are lots of people I interviewed, you know, architects of this policy from within the border enforcement apparatus, officials who've served under presidents, Democrat and Republican, who still believe in this, you know, what we call the gospel of deterrence in this story. And, and we've talked about what's given rise to that um, and the problems with allowing Border Patrol to set policy that's really humanitarian and economic and, and foreign, um, you know, when you leave it to law enforcement officials, 
they use the tools that are available and those tools are, are punishment. And that's why so many of these officials told me that they still think separating families, you know, would have been successful. They would often say, you know, we should have just left it in place a little bit longer, another two weeks, and it would have changed the numbers. Again, we don't have evidence to support that, but there is just this kind of, um, I think, desperation for some kind of a solution that leads people to go back time and again to deterrence and even family separation as a form of deterrence. We're talking about the period when border agents separated more than 5,000 migrant children from their families at the U.S.-Mexico border, beginning actually in 2017, though the policy of zero tolerance was formally announced, tolerance was formally announced at a press conference in May of 2018. We're talking with Caitlin Dickerson, who investigated this for 18 months. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, JL writes, all that ICE and Customs and Border Protection have are hammers, so everything looks like a nail to them. Congress is long overdue to provide these agencies better tools. Humane, practical, effective options are out there. The longer, the longer Congress delays, the more we will see brutal, wasteful, impractical measures, such as Governor Abbott has begun to employ. America is better than this, and our desperate neighbors deserve our best. After all, only Native Americans are free of immigrant ancestry. Um, Caitlin, you wrote about how Paul Ryan actually was somebody who wanted legislation that would ban separating families. Where has that gone? It's gone nowhere. At the height of zero tolerance in the summer of 2018, that is when the tide changed for those inside the White House who'd pushed for family separations because you had Republicans in Congress like Paul Ryan, like Ted Cruz, criticizing the administration for doing this. And I think that's largely attributable um, to the audio um, of that was leaked um, to ProPublica of, yeah. of separated children crying out for their parents. And I think that drew, you know, put into stark relief um, the fact that, you know, despite at that point, a year and a half of rhetoric that depicted anybody who crossed the border as, you know, a criminal gang member and a threat to the United States, that in fact, the people who were being implemented by this policy in many cases were very, very young kids, you know, no different than, you know, young kids who are born here in the United States. And so there was a real clamoring to move away from the practice, um, you know, because of its perceived inhumanity. But that's dissipated. And, you know, congressional action, um, as, as your writer pointed out, it, it's hard to gain support for. I think that it's really easy to alienate board voters when you're talking about immigration issues. And, and part of that might be because, you know, we as a country feel like we're facing so many social ills, so many challenges, so many systemic problems that, you know, the issues of, of a group that is often depicted as other um, just feels like it's, you know, taking away from domestic issues. So I think it really is up to politicians to start to acknowledge the reality, um, you know, that our con economy actually does rely on immigrant labor. Um, and not only that, but that, you know, immigration policy has huge implications for American citizens, for American children um, who grew up with, with immigrant parents. Um, you know, all of us in our workplaces work with immigrants. You know, this isn't some issue affecting some other far off population. It's, it's right here next to us. It affects all of us. And I think, you know, some some a lot more clarity and a lot more honesty is going to be needed in, in rhetoric from politicians on every side of the aisle um, in order to make progress and to sort of prevent us from making the same mistakes as a country over and over again. I was talking to a longtime source in the Border Patrol recently who said to me, you know, it feels like Groundhog Day. 
we keep doing the same thing over and over again. And, and I think it's because, you know, it's a big ask of Congress, but one that I think at this point is called for, you know, given where we are. Well, let me go to Colin quickly in San Francisco. Hi, Colin. Good morning. Um, I'd like to know if it's true whether President Biden uh, had personally intervened to um, veto the Department of Justice's proposed settlement, financial settlement with the families. I understood that there was going to be a payment of $200,000 for each separated family. Colin, Um, thanks. Caitlin, do you know about this? Yeah, thanks, Colin. Yes. So there are a number of civil lawsuits that separated families have brought against the federal government for what happened to them. And at the time, at one point, there was a discussion about a settlement that would grant, as your caller pointed out, um, a fixed amount to any family um, who fell under the auspices of such a lawsuit as part of kind of a class. Um, The numbers that were being debated leaked, and then the Biden administration pulled out of the discussion. I have not seen reporting that suggests that you know, Biden personally directed the Department of Justice to pull out of those negotiations. Um, I think that could potentially um, be a field of sort of rules that require the White House to, to grant DOJ a fair amount of autonomy in, in its work. Um, but I think that the fact that the administration pulled out of those negotiations at all, right, it speaks to just how controversial these immigration issues are um, and, and how kind of fearful um, of going, you know, awry of public sentiment, you know, the administration was. Because to this day, you know, just as when President Biden was campaigning, they talk about separation of families as being abhorrent. He, he once called it criminal. Um, and yet they pulled out of these negotiations kind of abruptly um, to the great confusion of families, you know, separated families involved in these cases who, who felt like they were sort of um, working together to come up with a resolution here. Um, and the administration has not given good information as to you know, exactly what their motivation was or, or why they've gone back to a kind of tactic of um, defending separated families in court. You know, I asked for an updated statement on this issue in my story, and I didn't get one. I was referred back to an old statement that said, you know, the administration remains committed to uh, so the language was something like, you know, absolving. Um, or, or addressing, you know, the harms carried out against these families, very clearly still acknowledging that they believe the policy was a bad thing, but they, they've sort of left us guessing as to um, how exactly they plan to address this. Well, Caitlin, thank you for giving us such a close-up look as to how this policy has, this policy came to be, despite all the ways on the face of it, it was so wrong, um, but also at the same time, Thank you for letting us know where it stands now, um, because that is a very important part of all of this. So thank you for coming on and talking with us today, Caitlin. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I was glad to be able to join you. Atlantic staff writer Caitlin Dickerson, thank you listeners for, for listening and for your thoughts. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.